TRP is a theologically progressive Baptist church in Salisbury, Maryland. This is our podcast. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Again, girls, what's my weakness? Men. Okay, then. Job, week two. We could have said, what's my weakness? Job. Job. Okay, then. Chilling, chilling. I'm minding my business. No, that's, that is um, salt and pepper for the uninitiated. It is, it is. As a child of the late 80s, early 90s, right in my sweet spot. Yeah, I think it was before I would have been listening to things like that, but... And by things like that, you mean secular music? I, w- well, I probably wouldn't have been allowed. Norman Moe said no to I mean, secular music? No, but they did, like, there was this one track on an NSYNC CD that I couldn't listen to. It was, was called... Was it too spicy? Yeah, it was spicy. It was called Digital Get Down. <laughs> digital, digital, get so, down. So one time when I was 13, uh, 14 or so years old, I got caught smoking cigarettes behind a Wendy's on a youth group trip. Spicy. And uh, got you know, kicked off the basketball team because of that mm-hmm. at my local Christian high school. And my mom thought that part of my downfall was the music I was listening to at the time. Because I had really gotten into like CDs. I had this big CD tower mm-hmm. as one Yeah, does. you did. I had a six disc Did it Pioneer spin or changer. was it just a... Uh, no, I think it did spin. Mm. Yeah. Because you had to have, you know, multiple points of entry in your cd tower i don't yes know. so anyway there were there were several sides so mom it. was like give me four of your cds i want to listen to them four yeah just like just she, pick any four yeah but guess what i did i you thought the worst ones? I, well, I thought that i could pick ones that she might enjoy mm. and like but or like to say like oh these are my favorites yeah you know what i mean and i didn't think i should give her the most tame ones mm. so one of the songs on you did the wrong I, I thing think, i think it was a, a smashing pumpkins record and the song was called silver <clears throat> silver f u oh. you know what i mean and it's mm-hmm. like she's like what is this there's a title of a song with this like <laughs> you have you have You'd- gone downhill <laughs> sir i was like oh man that was that was silly. You didn't even... Wow. Nope. Didn't proofread. Didn't do anything. I was like, oh, she's really going to want to jam out to this Smashing Pumpkins record. Aww. Can you... While I'm talking, can you Google that to see if that is Smashing Pumpkins? I'm pretty sure that it is. But now I'm not... I'm also thinking it might have been... Um, oh, that Australian band. Silverchair. No. I think I'm just thinking of that, about that because of the first... No, it was Smashing yes, Pumpkins. Yes, thank you. Uh, on the Siamese Dream record? Sure. Yeah. I don't know. It came out... Oh, wait, no. This live video is from the year I was born. Oh, yeah. Well, excellent. I was smoking cigarettes the year that you were born <laughs> and listening to questionable music. All right. That, none of that has anything to do with Job whatsoever. This you were is, 10 when I was born. You were not smoking cigarettes I know, yeah. But, I mean, the record... See, I had, I had gotten into... Good. Cigarettes early? <laughs> I, well, yes, but also I had gotten into rock and roll late. So it was this really cool time of figuring out all the bands. So I would go to Sam mm. Goody and every week just load up and be like, yeah. oh, I haven't tried Cream or oh, I haven't tried 
Pantera. Pantera actually had a parental advisory, and I had to wait for the right person who was working the register to let me buy oh it. Oh my gosh! I got turned down a few times, but I really wanted that album. I didn't mm-hmm. like it because it was way too hard. But a friend of mine played me "Verses" by Pearl Jam, which is one of my favorite records of all time. But when he mm-hmm. played, I was like, "Oh my gosh, what else don't I know?" And then I went back and I got all kinds. You of were stuff. were you buying all of these new? I mean, back then, there wasn't really a different way of doing it. I had money as a kid. What? Like, I had an allowance. Yeah, I got like 20 bucks a week. Yeah, I know. So, like, I was was into it. I never really had an allowance. I wasn't asking my parents to buy me these records. I was buying them myself. With the money they gave you. Yeah, so we would go to the mall like once a week, and I would... Hmm. Yeah. And I would... There were no use, I guess... Not not where I was. Oh. I mean, yeah. there wasn't even a fast food restaurant until I was about that age, 13 or 14. Walmart hadn't shown up yet. I mean, Laurel was a small town. There was not a lot to do. Wow. Yeah. Well, well there you go. Um, Job, week two. <laughs> we're like, actually, where are we? We're actually getting into the text this week. Now, Excellent. Here's the thing about Job that you need to know. Scholars have many different ideas about how the book was formed and how it developed over time. So what you have in chapters 1 and 2 is something called a narrative frame. Mm-hmm. It's a story that that allows us to make sense of chapters 3 through the first bit of chapter 42, which is mostly all dense theological, philosophical, poetic dialogue with Job and his three friends, um, who I don't think I can say their names off the top of my head, Bildad and Zophar and somebody else. And then some rogue friend named Elihu shows up. Find that third name. That's going to bug me. Um, Elihu shows up later in the text and scholars would say, oh, this is something that is attached to the poetic dialogue. Like, it doesn't fit because Elihu is not addressed in the narrative frame like the other three friends are. Do you get it? Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, yeah. the Shuhite, Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Okay. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. For some reason, saying those names out loud reminds me of that um, that genie in Big Zoltan, <laughs> I think is the name there. Anyway, so you've got all this stuff in chapters 3 through 42 and the, the first bit of 42. That's that, that dense, poetic, theological, whatever, dialogue between Job and his three friends. And then some rogue chapters from a guy named Elihu who doesn't fit. And in the beginning two chapters... And at the end of chapter 42 is a story. Mm-hmm. Now, scholars would also say that this story is sort of, let's say, a universal wisdom tale that is known outside of Israel that is being used here as the way to explain all of the stuff in the middle. Okay. Okay, so it's like it exists prior to all of the poetry. And they've used that to explain the poetry. Because if you just had the poetry, it wouldn't really make sense. It's just a guy who's complaining about how terrible his life is. Mm -hmm. But the frame, the story, it tells us why he's complaining. 
mm-hmm. right? So this is the story all about how Job's life got flipped, turned <laughs> oh. upside down, and I'd like to take a minute. Oh, I, wow. I didn't know where that was going, Tessa. I felt it going there. I know. Yeah, I know. And then it did. And it did. I'm here to... I wish that you had please, kept going. That would have been impressive. I'd have it written all of that. I think I guess I could. Maybe that'd be a fun little Instagram video. Mm-hmm. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> Local church striving for relevancy <laughs> in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, that was the more nineties. Was it? I don't Absolutely. remember what year it was. Anyways, so the story tells us about Job being super righteous. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then super righteous. And then God having a bet with. The Satan, mm-hmm. much like Freddie Prince Jr. and Paul Walker yes. in She's All That. Yep. And that's the that's the frame. Like the whole thing is about does Job really follow you because he wants to, or does he follow you because he gets stuff? Mm-hmm. And those two and a half chapters, they set up the entire story. The the back half, it it brings it all to its conclusion. But in the middle there, you just have all this poetry. So scholars would say you've got this universal wisdom story, which actually there's versions of this outside of ancient Israel. Mm -hmm. So like you have the Babylonian Job, so to speak. You've got a Job figure outside of the text who is also a righteous sufferer who is underneath of, you know, the, the testing of the gods, so to speak. Like there's a lot of overlap. And what the ancient Israelite author is doing is using this thing to explain the rest of it. That makes sense? So it's like, it's Mm -hmm. a layered story. You've got this ancient story that's being brought in. You've got this poetry. You also have this even later rogue few chapters from Elihu who doesn't make... Elihu? Yeah, exactly. Who's being thrown in. And people say there's different hands that are piecing together this bigger work that we now know as Job. Mm -hmm. People don't think about that a lot. I think we kind of assume like, oh, yeah, just one person sat down one day and just decided to write the book of Job. Yeah. It's impossible to recreate how those developmental stages happened. Uh, So what a lot of folks would then say is, why waste time thinking about it? So just look at the book as a whole. You know what I mean? So they'd say like, read the book as we have it. Sure. But I feel like the way that it came together matters in interpreting what it means. I do, too. The only thing that you could say there, though, is we don't know with certainty. You know, so even like um, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, scholars would say, oh, there's there's different sources that have been brought together to create this uh, larger collection. That's a theory— and it's a theory based on what we see in the text itself. It seems to hold water, but do we know it to be true? No. It's just our best guess as to how this thing developed over time. Okay. And you can do that with a lot of books. Yeah. So most scholars, again, would say like, yeah, it seems like it seems to make sense that the Elihu bit isn't part of the original text mm-hmm. because in the frame, we only meet Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar and also Zoltan, the magic genie mm-hmm. from the movie Big. Mm-hmm. Elihu is not included. Right. Elihu also is not included at the very end. Okay. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. what do we do with this rogue character that just kind of shows up? 
oh, well, it might make sense that somebody put that in later. Yeah, I guess what I'm thinking is that it sort of matters in terms of what genre Job is put into. That's, yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. And we'll, we'll actually get into that in a bit. So, well, let's just go ahead and dive in. Um, I'll read the first five verses of this story. And Tessa, I would love for you to play the role of the audience member who has first impressions. Now, this okay. is kind of cheating because you've heard this talk before. You've had this conversation before. These aren't really your first impressions, but throw them out when you got them. Okay. Okay. In the land of us. Oh. Do you want me to do my... I mean, you might as well. I've been reading a ton of fantasy novels, and by reading, I mean... Listening to? Listening to... What are the voices like in a... There's this one guy named Michael Kramer who reads all of the stuff, and he does voices. Um, So I've been reading... That's exciting. I've been reading a lot of Brandon Sanderson recently. Brandon Sanderson is the guy, the fantasy author, who recently did a Kickstarter. Did I tell you about this? No. So it's this guy that Colin turned me on to. He's got a lot of really great books. I didn't fancy myself a fantasy nerd until mm-hmm. recently, but because of all the running I've been doing, I've been listening to books mm. like crazy. So I just finished a 48 hour. Does that fuel book. your. The other day I did that 10 mile race. Run, yeah. And I use the word race very, very liberally. Uh-huh. Like I'm going to race myself. Right. Basically I right. set out a goal time and I try to beat it. But yeah, I started with the fantasy novel going in my earbuds. But then what? Okay, I, I got to say this too. Okay. At mile eight, it was just a 10-mile uh, run. Oh, yeah, just 10 miles. And, and at, my, at mile eight, I said, you know what? I'm kind of tired of listening to this book. Let me turn on my running playlist. Mm-hmm. I turned it on, and guess what happened? What? My pace increased, meaning like it got faster by about 45 seconds. So I had been trailing this woman for probably... A mile and a half or so. Uh-huh. That sounds skeevy, doesn't it? A little bit, um, yeah, but in which, context, which it's sometimes, all right. Sometimes I think about that. About I mean, we're all running in the woods, and I wonder if anybody feels weird about... Because I usually just fall in line, and I just start trailing people. Uh-huh. Because they can set the pace, and I can try to keep up with them. And yeah. That's how I keep myself occupied. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I've been trailing her for about a mile and a half, and I hit my playlist, and it's like... It starts with this... Um, I love this song. It's by a band called into it over it mm-hmm. and they're very good but like when it hit i was like i've got to go oh. and then i just burned her <laughs> and she's like you know which runners always do this trail runners do road runners are kind of jerks but trail runners do this where they're like they say encouraging things as you go by like oh yeah. nice job push it yeah you know what i mean yeah and i was like yeah and i felt so <laughs> good for that last like two miles because i'm like listening to my music and it just really affected me. And I thought, well, that was stupid. I probably should have listened to my music more than my Brandon Sanderson fantasy novels. But would you have had, if you hadn't paced yourself with the novel for the first eight miles? So that's the other part of it. I would really, you have had the I don't know the what energy. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and a lot of times, like, so for the uh, my other few races that I've done here in the past year, I have, like, crossed the finish line just dead. mm Nothing in the tank. Yeah. The other day, though, I felt like I finished. I was like sprinting the finish. I was running my best two miles at the very end. Yeah. And I thought I had a lot left in the tank that I probably should have given miles Interesting. five, six, seven. You know what I mean? 
So you need to figure out the right novel to music ratio, I yeah, think is what yes, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what it is. Maybe hey. it was like six six miles novel, four yes. miles. I know. Who knows? Mm. So anyway, Brandon Sanderson, fantasy oh, yeah. <laughs> fantasy guy, he writes a ton of stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, he's He's one with like the series that you and Colin yeah. have read. Okay. I mean, and like that first book in the series, 48 hours. The second book that I was listening to the other day. Wait, it's, it's like the 52 first hours. book is 48 hours? Yeah, of this particular series. You don't have it in print, right? Is it like a... Uh, it's, it's like 1,400 pages. Oh my gosh, this is, this is not what I'm built for. But it's so good. And anyway, I, I really started listening to this guy. And, and the guy who reads his books named Michael Kramer, he does all these voices. But Brandon Sanderson, the other day, like maybe two weeks ago, launched a Kickstarter because during COVID, he had he had written five additional books without telling anybody. His agent, his team, his publisher. What? Yes, because this guy's a machine. Because he'd written like, uh, I think he wrote another book in the 48-hour series. He wrote another book in this other series called Wax and Wayne. He wrote, so he's he's already writing he writes for eight hours a day, every day, and he gets what? on this and he gets on this Kickstarter. He's like, "Yeah, so I traveled a lot the last year and a half, and in my travel time, I just decided to write books." And then he slams down the manuscripts, and it's like thousands of pages. He's like, what? "I didn't even I didn't even tell my team about it." But then he launches this Kickstarter to say, "If you're a fan, we're going to do a year of Sanderson, and quarterly, I will give you the book." He's gonna, just going to release four of them. One, I think he wrote for his kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. But whatever. His kids Stupid. or whatever. Doesn't matter. Whatever. <laughs> so quarterly, you're going to get a new book, brand new book, that's not a part of any series, but is a part of the Cosmere. What is that? The universe that he writes in. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. He's Gosh. created a whole world. Oh, worlds. Plural. Yeah. So, But it's, it's part of the Cosmere. It's exploring whatever. It's expanding the Cosmere. Anyway. So you get that, and then at various levels, you'll get, um, you know, a print version. You'll get an audio book. You'll get stickers. You'll get T-shirts. You'll get autograph. Whatever, like depending. So are on, you pledging? Depending on what pledge level. Yeah. You know. No. Here, here's what I want you to hear. In less than 24 hours, this man raised 15 million dollars. What? He was trying to get, I think the number was like 3 million or something like that. In how many hours? 24 hours? So, but now, like, and that was, it was a, I don't understand life. It was a 30 day Kickstarter. (laughs) And and that was, that was the first 24 hours. It's still going. I haven't looked recently, but he's well over 20 million. It's the most fully, I'm going to look. It's the most funded Kickstarter of all time now. Isn't that nuts? That's insane. So people were like, I need, and that high, the highest package was like $500 for four books, four audiobooks, t-shirts, autographs, whatever. And people are like paying crazy amounts. Like what I need heck? this guy's stuff in my life. Yeah. <laughs> His goal was 1 million. Yeah. And he got that probably in, I was looking, it was the first time I ever was looking at a Kickstarter and like the number of backers, it was ticking like a clock and the number like... It was just it just kept moving. He's got 125,000 backers. Over 125,000 backers. 29,206,478. And think about it. That's not a published book. That's his book. He's not going through a publisher. That's his money. 
twenty nine million in the world from a year and a half worth of work. You know, it's crazy. He's the guy also for the people listening who are still listening. God bless you. <laughs> He's the guy. There's a new show on Amazon Prime called uh, The Wheel of Time. It's a series written by Robert Jordan. Yes. Robert Jordan is like the man. My cousin is reading that right now. Okay. It's And it's massive. Mm-hmm. At 20, 30. I don't know how many books there are, but it's a lot of books. Uh, Robert Jordan tapped Brandon Sanderson to finish it because he's dead. Robert Jordan died, and Brandon Sanderson was the guy that he wanted to finish that series. Was he old? I don't know what happened to him. We don't care about that. We just know that Brandon Sanderson is finishing the book. I assume so, and I think he already has finished it. I'm not sure, but that show's okay. Is this supposed to be him? Does he look like that? No, 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 no. That's probably a character from a book or something. I need to know what this guy looks like. I'm Brandon Sanderson. Oh, this is not at all what I was expecting. It's a he rich. <laughs> you should uh, you should watch that video because it's kind of funny. He 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 plays it off like I have a confession to make, and I really thought he was going to say I've I got caught plagiarizing is what I thought he was going to say because the man pumps out content like on his it. Kickstarter. See, I didn't think about it that way. Okay. I, he he also has a YouTube. Actually, that one it was a YouTube video that he did explaining the Kickstarter. I think. How does he write? I don't understand. He writes from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then he writes again from like 8 p.m. to midnight every day. How old are his kids? I don't know. I have so many questions. The guy, and I don't, I'm not a fantasy guy, but the guy's, the guy's crazy. Like his worlds are some of the most unique worlds. You might be a fantasy guy now. I might be. Okay. Can we get back to this? I don't even know what we're talking about. Well, I, it all started because I said, in the land of oh, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I, I did that voice. Oh, so we literally have not talked about anything. <laughs> Nothing, except okay, Brandon great. Sanderson. Okay. Well, that's so, a, that's our gift to you. Uh, there you go. Just And, you know, we'll start a Kickstarter if you want to you wanna back us. Give oh, my us gosh. Of dollars. Back us. Yeah. I could use some backing. Back it all I'm up. I'm starting a mural business. Hire me. There you go. We'll we'll drop Tessa's information in the comment yep. below. In the invisible comment box. Okay, here's anyway. the, here's a text. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. I want you to think about these these numbers. Okay? Seven sons, three daughters. Okay. He owned seven thousand sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. There, this is a, There's some translation stuff going on here, and I think that's a good one. The Hebrew does not literally say on their birthdays. He- hearing it this time through, it really is reading like a story, like a m- made-up story. Yes. I mean, yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, yeah. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. You can also tell, this is me talking, side note, um, whenever it says something like that, like, they used to do this mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And he used to, you know, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's, it's so parabolic. Mm-hmm. It's not, there was this one time when this happened, it's not, talking about specific instances it's talking it's in, in general painting a larger picture of yeah. their life so his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them when a period of feasting had run its course job would make arrangements for them to be purified wait 
The women were invited to the table? Yeah, and I don't think that's totally weird. Okay. Um, well, why did they mention that then? To, that he invited the the sisters to join. That's a good point. I, I, I think I was saying it's not that important because nobody makes a big deal about it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Which isn't, that's not the proof positive of whether or not it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know? But you would think someone would have talked about that. You if it were would, a if thing. If it was something, yes. Yeah. Now, the, the women play a big role later. And by okay. the women, I mean different women. Okay. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, early in the morning, Job would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God, note, in their hearts. That's a lot of burnt offerings. Every morning? The dude's rich. Not every morning. Early in the morning after oh. these feasts. Oh, oh, so, oh, 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 So 10 okay. times a year. If, if we're going to go with the birthday translation, right. 10 times a year, Job is going on a sacrificial... Uh, Was a burnt offering always an animal in this Beautiful scenario? question. In this scenario, yes. Okay. Remember in, in the last episode, we talked about Le- Levitical sacrifices. Mm-hmm. So it gives instructions about what a burnt offering is, mm-hmm. a whole burnt offering. Yeah. Now, people don't really know what that entailed or what that meant, but it was clear that it was an animal okay you do have other sacrifices like a cereal offering or a fellowship offering or a uh, there's one like a shalom offering like a peace offering sometimes it could be something that's not an animal frosted flakes yeah you know just some of your um, grains your whole grain whole yeah. grain oats whole grain cereal yep gosh remember, Kicks, do you remember grape cereal. nuts grape nuts oh gosh great for digestion it would shred your that too face oh okay. wow yep so early in the morning after the festivals, uh, which would happen if everybody gets a birthday 10 times a year, if only the guys get birthdays seven times a year, okay? mm-hmm. he would offer a burnt offering for each of them thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God, not out loud, not for real, but in their hearts. Mm-hmm. This was Job's regular custom. I think the Hebrew actually says, this is what Job did. Uh, there's some kind of play on days. Okay. Because in in verse 6, which is outside of our scope, it says on one day. So it's like Job is doing this uh, on a bunch of days, and then on one day, there's like this juxtaposition there. It doesn't matter. Okay. All right. So first impressions, we've already, we've had a couple of them so far. Anything else that you want to say? I remember thinking that he seems like kind of an overbearing parent. Yeah, uh, helicopter parent, perhaps. Yes. Especially when you think about he's offering sacrifices just in the off chance that they would have done something right. With internally. With no proof that that's something they were doing. Yeah, he's wanting to make sure that they are taken care of. Or he's paranoid. Or, yeah, or he's a bit, I don't know the word, just an overbearing parent. Mm-hmm. Um, we should say that that first phrase there, which translated in our version, um, is in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Uh, a better, not better, but a more wooden literal translation from the Hebrew would be, a man there was in the land of Uz. <gasps> wow, that is delightful. Yes. Now, this 
signals for some interpreters that the story is not a historical story. Mm -hmm. So think about a man there was in the land of Uz in a similar light as once upon a time. Mm -hmm. You know, this is like giving readers clues because the same Hebrew structure of this phrase, which is unlike any other book, Mm -hmm. uh, books would start in a different way. This story can be linked to the parable that Nathan told to David after David's sexual assault with Bathsheba, where he's talking about the poor man with the little lamb and the rich man with Mm -hmm. lots of lambs who takes the poor man's lamb. That Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. It's the same structure. Once upon a time, so to speak. Or a man there was who had a little lamb. That's And these are the two stories in the Old Testament. So if we link this parable that Nathan tells to David with this book and and view you know that that structure as something that tells us about genre, it would lead some scholars to think this is a fable, this is a parable, this is not meant to be read historical. This is a wisdom book that is transcending sort of event reporting and talking about a situation in which uh, a man had to go through a lot of stuff, and it's very generalized, and it's meant for universal application. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, others say that that's actually not happening here. The, the point is not to discredit the story's historicity, but rather to set this story off on its own. And I don't necessarily know if these two need to be mutually exclusive. The point there is they would say this story of Job is not connected in any way to Israel's history, right? It doesn't say anything about the covenant. It doesn't say anything about the people of Israel. It doesn't. It actually has Job, whose name is more of a foreign name, living in Uz, which is more of a foreign place, right? So it's got this main character outside Where of Israel. Where is Uz? Good question. Where do we know? Uh, most scholars think it's in Edomite territory. But the point is not where is us. One of his friends was in Edomite. Is that right? Um, that sounds right, but I, I'm not sure. What they're trying to do with those names and places is they're, oh, they're trying at a literary level yeah. to, to put this story in the time of the ancestors. It's like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So they're using place names and people groups and um, names, proper names, mm-hmm. to to make readers think, oh, this is an old story. Okay. But that's a literary device. Right. Okay. Uh, so what David J.A. Kleins says is, the importance of the name Uz lies not in where such a place is. You get that? So he's answering you. He says, oh. mm, good question, but wow. wrong he question. He heard me. Yes. Wow. It doesn't, it, the importance is not where such a place is, but where it is not. Israelites themselves may not have known its precise location, but they will have known, as we do, that it is not in Israel. That's the point. I think those two things can go together. I don't think it's an either this is a parable or this is something that's trans uh, Israel, like it transcends Israel. Mm-hmm. I think those They're two not things mutually can go exclusive. To, right. I think they can go together. Yeah. It can be a fable, a parable, or whatever, and also having this point of it's also not in Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, like let's we can marry those two things together. Um, also, that that name of Job, it's not elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, except for when Job is 
referenced in the book of Ezekiel, um, which helps us to sort of make a claim for this as well, because remember, Ezekiel is saying Noah and Job and this Canaanite guy, uh, Don Ale, or Donnie Ale, mm-hmm. I, I, forget, I keep forgetting to look that up, but I need to figure that out, uh, which pronunciation it is. But like, that person is a Canaanite. It's either Don Ale or Donnie Ale. Yeah. I don't know gotcha. if there's a, a vowel connector there or not. Uh, okay. Uh, Tessa came up with this really nice piece of <laughs> art, which was a, a bottle of beer called Donnie Zale. It said Donnie Ale. It's it said at the top. It's not Daniel. It's Donnie Ale. Donnie Ale. Ale. Yeah. Guys got Gosh, that would be good up. for like a homebrew. Yeah. Yeah. For all the people that love Canaanite, early Canaanite literature. Yeah, you'd probably have to put something on the label so yeah. people knew what was going on. And people want to read about yes. uh, ancient Absolutely. You know, religious texts while they're drinking. You could you could sell it to all your pastors yes. for normal people. Oh, yes. Good. Um, either way, the story is, it's, it's you know, whether it's a parable or it's disconnected from Israel's story, we have a story that's meant to be read as universal wisdom. It's like this wisdom tale. Um, and I think that's important as we focus on what this story is doing. We also learn a lot about Job's character in these few beginning verses. You know, he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he shuns evil. One scholar named Carol Newsom says the character of Job is the pivot upon which the entire book turns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As soon as anyone says pivot ever, all of our minds collectively go to the stairwell yep. and Ross Geller saying, pivot, pivot, pivot. <laughs> I also love the outtakes of that when they're all just like dying laughing. <laughs> it's a good time. But she's right. The The character of Job is the important axis for this story where we need to know that his high moral character is in effect so that the wager in the next verses makes sense. Okay. Um, as this text sits, it's, it's, it's hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. The, the point is, is to say like Job as uh, one scholar named Nor- Norman, I don't actually don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's spelled H-A-B-E-L. Hobble? I've, I've never... Hobber or Hubble. I've never um, heard him referenced before. Hmm. Uh, but his commentary is one of the best ones on the book of Job. I should probably learn how to say the man's name. But he says, Job is the model of a righteous man who epitomizes the advice of the sage from Proverbs. Be wise, not in your own eyes. Fear God and shun evil. I say that this is sort of like... Jude has gotten into this routine where if he really wants to stress something, Jude's five, and he'll say, that is really, 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 and he'll just keep going until he finishes that statement. This is what the author is doing. Job is really, 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 really righteous, really great. In fact, he's the greatest person among all the people of the East. We also learn that Job is filthy rich. He's got seven sons and three daughters, which adds up to make what number? Ten. Good, good math. Thank you. Yeah. He owns 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, which adds up to make what number? 10,000. 10, he's got 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, which adds up to make what 1, number? 1,000. Yeah, he's got a large number of servants. So uh, some people would say all of these numbers, they're symbolic because threes and sevens and tens 
are important in um, in in the Hebrew language or in the ancient world, right? So some people attach a lot of a lot more significance to the to the numbers. We've all probably heard seven is the number of perfection, mm-hmm. and we've also all heard that three is a magic number, and one is the loneliest number. Yeah. Those last two are not biblical uh, sermon material, but they are funny. What is three is a magic number? Three, it's a magic number. There's a song. Oh. I don't know where or why. Maybe hmm. a kid's song. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so you've got Job, blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. And then there's like, in, in the Hebrew, there's this almost a causal relationship between his character and all the stuff that he has. So some people would say that you know the reader is encouraged to see these two things, Job's exemplary moral character and all the riches that Job has as somehow linked together, right? So because Job is moral and righteous and whatever, Job gets a lot of stuff. This is sort of the, the mindset that's pervasive in the ancient world. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. And it, it, it actually becomes a, a thing within the discussion between Job and his three friends because they all say, listen, man, I know you keep saying that you're you're perfect, that you're blameless, but this wouldn't be happening to someone who's perfect and blameless. Mm. The theology of the day is do, do bad, get bad. So what did you do, Job? Just right. tell us. Just tell us why your family's dead. Just tell us why your cattle has been stolen. Just tell us why you're sick and you have boils all over your body. Because this wouldn't happen to a good person, mm-hmm. right? So those those things are getting linked uh, linked together. Also, we learn about Job and his parenting, as Tessa already pointed out. His sons they used to hold feasts and they would have their sisters over and they would drink and they would eat and like in, in the Old Testament world, they they were partying. For some reason, I'm imagining like the super rich, like modern day family, and the kids are all spoiled. Like Super Sweet 16 on MTV? Yes. Remember that show? Yes. And the parents are just like fixing all their messes for them. Yeah. That seems to be happening here. We don't, there's not a lot to go on. Is there a mom? What? Yeah. Like, she, she shows up later. Okay. Remember, she's the one that says, just curse God and die. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, So we don't know a ton about the kids and their character other than they party on their birthdays and Mm -hmm. their their parents apparently are not invited. Mm. You know, it seems like something is happening that's outside of the scope because Job just shows up and says, well, maybe they did some stuff and I need to atone for their sins by offering these sacrifices. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's weird. But yeah, the, the image that I had was like this Instagram family that's got khaki pants and white shirts and they're on the beach and the professional photographer is out there shooting. And then mm-hmm. you get this story on Instagram where the photographer's like, I just loved this shoot so much. I am just dying over all of these great shots. You know how they wow. do that? Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm just so over the moon about, <laughs> they don't say over the moon. I forget what, they, what sometimes they what might cool hipster language they use to describe how great these photos are mm-hmm. that nobody wants to see. Nobody other than this person's family wants to see another family on the beach in khaki pants and white shirts 
posing. But someone might see it and be like, oh, I'd like those pictures for my family. I, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm just, I personally, I'm just so far outside of that realm. You know what I mean? You don't want to dress up in khaki pants? Absolutely not. uh, That can get out of my face. Can we do it as a joke? Can I take pictures of your family? It would be so funny. Nobody would, nobody would understand. They would just, we could even put khaki pants on Porter. They would just, now that would be funny. <laughs> I do have a picture of Porter, who's my dog, in my phone where Abe had taken off like this button-up shirt he was wearing and he put it on Porter. <laughs> so he's like laying in his bed wearing this red uh. shirt with sharks on it. <laughs> he looked like a little gentleman. It was oh funny. Oh gosh. But yeah, this is this is uh, posturing. This group of people is posturing as the perfect family, sort of. I think that that sense of entitlement is there. The kids are kind of doing whatever they want. They know their dad's going to take care of them. That's kind of happening here um the kids know that they're going to be protected and job is acting this out not just on a financial level because he's given the kids have enough wealth of their own to throw these lavish parties apparently Mm -hmm. you know yeah and i bet people knew like oh job's kids birthday party it's coming up we also have no idea how old these quote-unquote kids are correct okay um a friend of mine used to use his birthdays as a time to make money because he knew that when you came to the birthday, you would give a gift and he would say, I'll just bring some cash, you know, whatever. So he would make, that's 25, what I should do. He would make 2,500 bucks on a 14 year old birthday. Cause he would invite the whole Genius. school. They would go to the gym. They would put their cash in a box. And he's like, yeah, man. Wow. Yeah, Smart. Little entrepreneur. Yeah. He, he now currently owns his own business. Um, but Job is like this priestly protector as well, where he's offering sacrifices for kids just in the off chance that they would think bad things. Now, cursing God was a big deal in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's legislation where this is punishable by death. So in Leviticus 24, um, the Lord says to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anybody who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. No big deal. Yeah, so it's intense. Yeah. I should say, too, that we have a lot of this legislation that is very crazy. Mm -hmm. Don't jump to to the conclusion that people actually enacted this. You know what I mean? So just because the law says, hey, if your kid's rowdy, stone him. I don't think anybody's doing that. It's just part of the legislation. Why Why did it exist? Why did that law exist mm-hmm. in the way that it does? I don't know. Um, I would I would appeal to like cultural things. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be able to appeal to a... It's an intense law, maybe meant to evoke some... Teach respect of your... Some kind of response, like, oh, this this one's really important. I should listen to this. Mm. I just don't think that we should, uh, you know, make that jump where because the law is in there, people are actually doing this sort right. of thing, you know? Yeah. We don't have a lot of stories where that's the case. We don't have a lot of evidence where that's the case, That that sort of... That sort of stuff. But still, in the story world, cursing God is a is a big deal. I should also note this, too. And I don't know if people will care about this. 
But in the Hebrew where it says, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God, it actually says, and I always feel like a little jerkus when I'm up here saying, it actually says in the Hebrew. Mm. But it actually says <laughs> in the Hebrew, it says, perhaps my children have sinned and blessed God. So in the narrative frame, in the first two chapters, there's a lot of blessing and cursing happening. Yeah. Whenever you see cursing in English, think blessing in Hebrew. That's confusing. Yes. <laughs> People think it's because um, the author of the story wants to distance themselves from the cursing of God, so they use a euphemism, blessing. That just confuses everybody. To, but it wouldn't have confused them. because well, because blessing, they should think well, more about us. Well, yeah. <laughs> Just Is kidding. somebody going to read this, yeah. you know, like 2,600 years from now? Yeah, I should yeah. probably change it. I bet things will be different then. Things will be very different. Yeah. Uh, so they wanted to distance themselves from cursing, so they used the euphemism of blessing with the clear intent that it actually means So cursing. it would be like in parentheses, or not in parentheses, in quotes, air quotes. I'm just going to... Bless me. Yes, that's good. Like scare quotes. Yeah. What is um, scare quotes? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You use that all the time. Well, that's what they're called. They're called scare quotes. What? But I don't know. I don't know why they would be called that, other than just to make you say like, "Whoa, <laughs> hi, Ooh, scary." Okay. Yeah, we we took that one where it didn't need to go. Interesting. Perhaps my children have blessed have sinned and blessed God, but clearly the implication is cursing. Now, can I just say here for a second? Yes. Re reading and <laughs> translating the Bible is hard work. I think it's so simple and straightforward. So I was talking on Facebook the other day um, where a friend of mine had just learned that the word for Jesus and Joshua in the Greek this. language is the same. Yes. Jesus. Mm -hmm. So when you're translating the Greek version of the book of Joshua, Joshua is going to be walking around named Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that had led to a an interesting translation or interpretive dilemma because in the book of Hebrews, the author's talking about rest and if Jesus had really given the people rest, then dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. The King James Version says, if Jesus had really given the people rest, then dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. Every other English Bible now would say, but if Joshua had given the people rest, Dot, dot, dot. So, so the English Bible translators now are saying the intent of the author is Joshua didn't really give rest when he brought people into the promised land, whereas the translators of the King James Version read Jesus as Jesus and said, oh, Jesus is the one who doesn't really give rest. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. So, and this, this happens all over the place. That was just, that was just an example that was right on the tip of my, tip of my brain, but like, you have these words, and you have to make sense of them in their context. 
And sometimes that's clearer than other times. Mm -hmm. So to all the people out there, it's like, oh, this is a clear quote unquote scare quotes biblical right issue yeah you might want to check yourself right because translation is hard and interpretation is hard mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what authors were saying 2000 years ago is hard mm-hmm. right yeah so we, we've already talked about this a little bit um but t- tell me some things about the nature of this story like what do just from my little diatribes about the language and whatever, like what are we learning about how the genre of Job mm-hmm. might be functioning? Well, as a parable. Yeah. Um. One of the things we've been trying to unpack in person was, is that a, is that a hard thing for people to hear? I think it can be. What would be the, the pretext upon which that's a hard thing to hear. What do you mean? Yeah, that was that was a way of phrasing it that I've never phrased it before. Like thinking that it's that was that it was a real historical thing. Yeah. It completely I mean it completely changes the meaning of it. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, can I? Because like for example, I'm I'm always I'm always pressed in my mind thinking like, okay, if I say something like Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a big fish, and then people say, oh, no, he absolutely was. Well, the story of Jonah doesn't necessarily shift a whole lot if you view him as a historical character. He wasn't. Or or a parable. Except, are you saying that maybe when you think parable, your brain switches into a different gear? Yes. I think in some ways it gives the story more leeway. Um, and if it is a parable and God didn't actually inflict these things on this one guy, it gives you more space to think about God in relation to this story. Okay. So we're not enslaved to a literal interpretation when we're thinking parabolic. Yeah. yeah. I wonder why that is. I agree with you a hundred percent, but I wonder why we have trained ourselves to think, Oh, this scare quotes inspired historical tale. Mm-hmm. It means something so different as history than it does at you know what I mean like so. Well, so, maybe the the story isn't about the character of God. Then it can be focused to something else. If God didn't actually do it, then we can take something else out of it. I still think that we should say the story is about God, right? Like, so so all of the Bible is meant to to teach something about God as a as a figure. Now, that, yeah. but that doesn't mean, so what we were talking about in week three, and we'll get there, is the way that God is characterized in the story. It's almost like God is a bit insecure about who Job is, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And if we say, well, that's a literal theological description about an insecure God in the sky, mm-hmm. that makes me unsettled. Yes. It makes other people unsettled too. Yeah. But if we say, oh no, in the story world, God is being described as an insecure character, that's different. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But I wonder why we just, we aren't, al- we don't allow ourselves to see non-parabolic stories as something that is meant to 
transcend that rootedness. Gosh, that's a lot of jargon. What I mean is um, a story that is clearly historically rooted mm-hmm. still has a theological point to share. Well, definitely. But I think you have to take into consideration the actions of God more so in those stories. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, like, um, the conquest. It's If yeah. God really told Joshua to go murder everyone who, right. who, who was breathing, yes, that's different than thinking about God saying these things in the story world, mm-hmm. but God really didn't say those things. Right. Yeah, okay. I get that. And I, it's not that you... It's not that you can't take away a larger theological meaning from the story, but you have to take into consideration the character of God more so in those circumstances. Yeah. Or it, it feels like it says more about the character of God. Not if, that if it's historical. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Not that you can't You're you're tied down a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That that makes sense. Um Tell me, tell me a little bit about the character of Job. We've we've hit on some of his key features, but what sort of things? Paranoid, helicopter parent. Yeah. Um, also wildly successful. Very successful. He he looks out for his kids. Yeah, and that's honorable. Yeah. Um, very liked. It seems like rich. I think liked would be fair, although I don't know if that's or at least in popular <laughs> or known. Known. Known is that's, probably that's, better. That's a safer word because we've got, and I guess God knowing Job isn't the same as all the other people knowing. Mm-mm. But you'd figure if these if these kids were partying, they're inviting some folks. Yeah. People. Well, didn't it say he was known through the land or something like that? The narrator says that he was the greatest person in all of the East, okay. which doesn't necessarily, right. it, it's more of a comparative. Yeah. Right? So the narrator is wanting us to see this as a man- beyond reproach mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know how much we can read into his to his status and his popularity although you do got some people showing up that have heard about his calamities you mm-hmm. know so so there's some there's some unsettled stuff there but mm-hmm. things that would lead us to say yeah probably people know about this guy named job yeah wants to um be righteous yeah the, the question then becomes to what end yeah Right, so is he wanting his kids to be blameless so that he can keep being rich? Right, so that he can keep all his animals, so that he can keep all of his good luck going. Yeah, or is this is this real? That's what the that's what the pivot, according to Newsom, is about. Mm-hmm. Is Job good because of the stuff he gets, or is Job good because he loves and is committed to Yahweh? Mm-hmm. Now, with all of that, I want us to jump ahead to the end of the story. Okay. okay, so chapter 42. Before we get there, we kind of have to play this out a little bit. And we've, we've hinted at it. We know about Job in the first five verses, and then, it tr- and then it transports us into the heavens, and we hear about this uh, wager between God and the Satan. We'll talk mm-hmm. more about the Satan next time. It's not Satan. It's not the devil. It's the adversary. It's the adversary, the accuser, the prosecuting attorney. It's someone who embodies those characteristics. It's not a proper name. It's a description. It would be like somebody referring to me as the contrarian. Mm-hmm. That's not my name. No. But it can be a persona that I bring to the table. Yeah. And the Satan is part is of... Is it 
you would say it's lowercase. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the the Satan is a member of God's divine council, where God is at the head of the table, and lesser divine beings flank God, and they report on the business that they're doing in helping God to to rule over the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a completely ancient way of thinking about things. It is not meant, in my opinion, to be taken literally. Mm-hmm. It is a literary device. Maybe that people thought in the ancient world. It's hard to tell, but they talk about this sort of thing a lot. And the Satan is there. And again, God is saying, ah, my boy Job, he's so good. And God even ups the ante. He's not just the best person in all of the East. He's the best person ever. In this ancient description, do you think it would be more like they're all reclined at the table? There's no boardroom. No, I think this is this is meant to it's it's really meant to evoke um, a king talking to all of his mm. different heads. Okay, you know yeah. what I mean. Like yeah. so, it's 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 King Arthur at the at the what is that called? The round table at the round table. Yeah, yeah. So and all of the other knights that are important. Yeah, that have jobs to do. Are there bringing whatever they have, and all the swords are in, in the middle of the, right. the table? Okay. Or uh, my friend Johnny brought this one out. Yes. God is Santa Claus. Yep. And the Satan is like the Easter Bunny mm-hmm. or the Tooth Fairy, mm-hmm. right? Like Santa Claus is running the show, but you've got all these other Mother Nature. You've got yeah, the lesser uh, Sandman. Yeah. Jack Frost. You've got mm-hmm. all these lesser divine beings at the table, but God is is Santa CEO. Gotcha. I think of it in terms of Don Draper, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got, and I, for, gosh, I forget who the the head of that company is at this at this point, but like you've got the head of of the ad agency at the head of the table, mm-hmm. and then Don Draper uh, on the side of the big mahogany table, right? Right, and the Satan is Don Draper. Gotcha. So this this is what's happening here, and God says, "My boy Job is so good, and the Satan, because this is his character, and also this is what he's been entrusted to do, says, I don't know about that. I'd like to figure that out, God. Mm-hmm. I'd like to push the bounds, and I'd like to see if he actually does honor you, because, and this is the this is the mind meld, the Satan cares about the honor of God." Mm-hmm. Which is important because if we see that character as Satan, that's impossible, right? right. It's only confrontational. Mm-hmm. It's the devil who shows up at a board meeting where the devil is not invited to say, "Hey, I've mm-hmm. got a plan or a plot or whatever." That's not what's happening here yeah. at all. They are, in Brene Brown terms, they're rumbling. They're rumbling with vulnerability. Yeah, that's what they're doing. <laughs> um, also, your English Bible will say Satan, capital S. Why do they do that? I don't know, because they know better. Mm-hmm. Any Anybody who's translating the book of Job knows. I have not seen one person in print saying, oh yeah, this is Job. It doesn't fit the timeline. This is a, this is a character that, that develops and takes on a different persona altogether. Right. Like Satan in the New Testament, as the one who tempts Jesus is a different character altogether. Ah, it's a bit of a stretch. But it's a different character, let's just go with it, altogether than the Satan in the Old Testament because right. the Satan in the Old Testament cares about the honor of God and wants to protect it by rooting out all of the people who are 
phonies. Right. Satan in the New Testament is the devil, Mm -hmm. like the evil one who Mm -hmm. says, screw you, God, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to drag your son down with me. Right. So there's this development that takes place and I have no idea why they, why they do that. Hmm. You also want to, do you want to get one more piece that's going to mess with your brain? Sure. If Satan is a character trait, there's a story in the Old Testament about Balaam and Balaam's ass. Remember that one? No. Uh, there was a, um, there was a, an associate minister of a church I used to work at and he really wanted to preach a message when an ass talks. Oh my <laughs> Cause, gosh. Because the story is about <clears throat> Balaam riding a donkey and the donkey won't go because the angel of the Lord is standing in, in front of the donkey. Mm-hmm. And the donkey's like stopped in the middle of the road because the donkey can see it. Oh, oh, oh. And yes. Balaam's like beating the donkey like, let's go, come on, let's go. And yeah. then the donkey turns and says something to yeah. Balaam, <laughs> which is so Disney. It is. Um. We should make that into a phrase. That's so Disney. That's so Disney. <laughs> um, Great. We'll have to bring but, that back. But the angel of the Lord, which is a cipher for the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, like right. they're, they're the, the same. Yeah. The angel of the Lord says, I am being Satan. Hmm. I forget to, to the donkey to the, in the situation, like yeah. I am being the adversary that's causing this donkey not to move. And yeah. you don't see that. Yeah. So even God is being <clears throat> Satan. Mm-hmm. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> you know, so like that, hmm. we, we don't have a lot of those pieces there when we're thinking about this story. I think part of that is people can't deal with nuance. And a lot of the time. Yeah, people can't deal with development. Uh-huh. People can't, like when I say something like, oh, monotheism, that's a pretty late concept. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that was built into the very beginning of the Bible. Right. Um, and by that, I mean the existence of one God yeah. was not something from the earliest parts of Israel's story where they're like, oh yeah, only one God exists. That would be, right. that would be nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Like Certainly there's hundreds. Yeah. We like this one. Yeah. That's called monolatry. Mm-hmm. We worship the one God. Mm-hmm. But there, a lot of them exist. Mm-hmm. Or resurrection. Resurrection is not a thing. Or heaven and hell. Heaven and hell is not a thing in the Old Testament. Hell is not a concept yeah. that takes any space in the Old Testament whatsoever. But because we believe it, we throw it back onto the, like, the entire book. Right. Which is not, not what's happening. All right, so let's just skip ahead. Um the Satan says, let's test Job. God says, sure. And the first test is, let's kill all of his kids and steal all of his cattle. And let's see how he deals with that. And that's just the first test. Yeah, right. The second, and then just to, in my mind, it gets, it gets like, it goes downhill. Second test is, uh, you can mess with Job, just don't kill him. Mm-hmm. So he gets boils. And I'm thinking like, if I this had is cho- backwards. Yeah, if I had to choose between me getting sick or my kids dying, I'm yeah. going to choose the right. getting sick. Right. So it's like, let's kill them all. Right. Why did he go in that direction? Know. It's very strange. I've never really thought about it. It's not how I would have done it. Right. Now, okay, so the point is, uh, in the two tests, a lot of bad things happen. And at the end of the book, in the narrative frame, God comes comes back onto the scene and then sort of pieces it together 
Um, I did have a little, little bit of comedy here, well, mm-hmm. intended comedy, mm-hmm. where you were giving me such a hard time the other day about how I ruin the sixth sense for everybody. Yes. Because it's such a good example of Christotelic hermeneutics. What? <laughs> <laughs> when you see, and I can do this without ruining the movie. If you haven't seen The Sixth Sense in the 25 years since it's been Listen, released. Listen, here's my whole, I, I you gotta really let me say my, you gotta let me say my go piece here. Yeah, go for it. If you have kids. Yeah, so like Jack Rogers is in there. Who are not, yeah. yeah. Okay. You don't want to ruin it for them. Got, it's a I great movie. Okay. Anyway. So, so I can say this. When you see the end of The Sixth Sense and your jaw drops and you're like, what? No way. Right. When you rewatch it, you rewatch it in such a different way. That's true. So like Christotelic hermeneutics, Jesus is the surprise ending. Once you see that surprise ending, you cannot reread the Old Testament without seeing Jesus as the end of the story. Right. Okay. So now I'm going to ruin the story of Job for us. That's fine. Because, yeah, it's not as good as The Sixth Sense. (laughs) (laughs) And because it's much, much older. But at the end, you know, God kind of shows up and says, hey, Job's been right this whole time. All the time that he's been arguing, he has he's said what is right of me. I want him to sacrifice for these friends that are idiots, more or less. Um, and then also God then starts to bless Job's life. It says that he blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep. He had 6,000 camels. He had 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkey. He's just times two, mm-hmm. you know, all of the numbers that were in the beginning. Um, then it says, and he also had seven sons and three daughters, which is the same number. This is troubling. Right. This but, is a troubling part of the And you might expect he had, he had 14 sons and six daughters, but also even if your kids die, you still are a parent to them. Yeah. So like it is doubling from seven to 14 by yeah. adding seven more and three more. Right. And then it goes on to say the, um, the first daughter, which is weird. This is weird because he's going to name them. Mm-hmm. Whenever a woman has a name in the Bible, please pay attention because mm-hmm. it is so, I don't want to say it's so rare, but it, this is a patriarchal world. So when women take space, it's not common. It's not common. What, yeah. What's that? What's that rule about? Like, um, yeah, when there's the, two, the Bechdel test. Is, is that what it's called? Yeah. So there's there's two uh, two women in a scene by themselves having dialogue without a man. Then then a movie and or the a con- film. And the dialogue can't be about a man either. Okay. And then the the movie or the film it, it passes this test. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Yeah, yeah that's right. I think it's B E C H T E L. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's that's a rare thing within the Bible, but now it says he's named. He doesn't name the seven sons in either episode, and now he's naming the daughters. It says the first daughter he named, and I'm actually going to go with the interpretation of the name. Okay, okay. so I mean the, the girl's name is is Jemima. Oh, but it I means can only think of syrup. I know, but it means dove. Mm-hmm. The second daughter. Her name means cinnamon. Obviously. And the third daughter means horn of eyeshadow, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> I told I told Laura this, but whenever I hear that name, I think of Laura, who's mm-hmm. an elder at our church. And it's not because she cakes on makeup, it's because she loves makeup. And she knows what's up. And with she makeup. Kn- she does know what's up and she likes to help people have makeovers and whatever. It's true. 
So he's got three daughters, Dove, Cinnamon, and Horn of Eyeshadow. And then the narrator says, nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughter, as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. This is really unheard weird. of. It's, it was not. It's not quite unheard of. Not um, common. Right. There's another character Much named. Much like women being named in the Bible. Zelephahad. Zelephahad, I think. His daughter's got some stuff too. Okay. Um, but yeah, not not part of the not part of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. But now see how everything has shifted. So, before the tragedy. Job's parenting style is, is intense. Like he's worried about his kids' safety. He's worried about their protection. He's offering sacrifices for them, not because of what they did, not because of what they said, but because of what they might have said, because of what they might have thought. Like he wanted to make sure that his kids were okay because of the thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then they die this tragic death in the story. And something has shifted mm-hmm. from helicopter parent Job to now trusting enough to have more children Mm -hmm. he becomes vulnerable enough to open himself up to that sort of of trust Mm -hmm. and i there's this quote from ellen davis who's a professor at duke uh, old testament professor and she says this that is so rich and juicy (laughs) okay she says the note at the end of the book that Job had seven sons and three daughters is often considered to be a cheap parting shot, as though God could make it all up by giving Job another set of children to replace the ones who were lost. And she's like, she's crawling up into my head, mm-hmm. right? Even like yeah. two or three weeks ago, I would say, I hate Job because mm-hmm. the ending is so stupid. Mm-hmm. It's just like, he's got these kids, they're dead, and now magically you can sort of replace them with new kids. Right. Your old kids aren't here. Then you got new kids. Yeah. And that's just a that's a an infantile way of reading the story. Mm-hmm. And and it misses the larger point. She goes on to say, that's to judge the last scene from the wrong side. Because when we view this is me talking, because when we view Job, it's about God and God's honor and how could God do that? Like we put all of the stuff on God. Mm-hmm. But she's saying that's the wrong way of thinking about it. The book is not about justifying God's actions. It's about Job's transformation. Hmm. Helicopter parent, overprotective parent, to now trusting, mm-hmm. vulnerable, generous, mm-hmm. right? Dove and cinnamon and horn of eyeshadow, like they're getting, they're getting the stuff. She says, it's useless to ask how much or how little it costs God to give more children. The real question is how much it costs Job to become a father again. Ooh. Yeah. Ugh. Right? So after 39 chapters of him saying, you're terrible. I wish I was dead. I wish I wasn't even conceived. This pain is unbearable to finally being able to say, let's try again. Also with the same awful woman who was telling him to curse God and die. Yeah. Ostensibly. Yeah. Because we don't hear much about her. Right. But for them to be able to, and again, this is the I would assume she would have also been transformed in some way through. I hope so. But even even like you you hear these stories about like when tragedy happens, like divorce rates skyrocket. Mm -hmm. Right. So the the fact that they're 
having sex <laughs> after all this. Can I say it? Like the fact that they're intimate with one another after yeah. all of this, even that is somewhat of a miracle in and of itself. Yeah. This is the woman who said to him, curse God and die. Screw your integrity. Right? If Kate said that to me, I'd be like, what? <laughs> it would be hard for us to go out on the town and have a romantic I would uh, say in, nearly in, impossible. Yeah. It's yeah. Just a, lot of, a lot of things are being stacked against Job in this. But now at the end, he's having kids. And instead of saying like, oh, look at God, just doubling down and, and giving gifts because the whole point is do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Like, mm-hmm. And we've dispelled that, but still Job's getting good. The point, no, is Job has been transformed so much by this situation that God did not, um, I would say, uh, I think I can say this, at a... At a more ethereal level did not plan for job to have but see in the story world that's where it gets all jacked up right because it kind of god's like culpable for this yeah Ah, i hate that i still have like i know i can't i can't make it all go away the transformation of job so let's leave god out of it well but then i still have a hard time with like but your kids are like your First ten kids are still. I, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think we should impose on Job or his wife that they're okay now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like maybe it's having these kids and then going to this memorial gravesite that they have, where they're still remembering their their people. Mm-hmm. They haven't forgotten them. They can't. Right. No. Maybe Job's even still offering sacrifices for him. Who knows? I mean, like it's still a part. We I think we kind of read this story and we think like, oh, well, he just kind of washed his hands of his past life and now he's got this other life. I don't think neither God nor Job are necessarily doing that. The, but the point is, let's not put God on the hook for all this. Let's instead see a transformation in the narrative from the beginning to the end where Job is learning all of these things now and learning how to trust now and doing things different now because of what this suffering has has been in his life. And this is where I really want to caution us by saying he's learned a lot and he's different now. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's, maybe this is the squeezing, mm-hmm. you know, like God has squeezed goodness out of tragedy and Job is transforming, but it doesn't take away all the pain, nor would I want us to see any of our pain as a roadblock set up by God, like a video game to make us get through this so that we can get to that. I still have a hard time with too. the the kids being a pawn sort of in the story. I don't think they're pawns so much as I think that they are symbolic of Job beginning to be vulnerable again and beginning to trust again and beginning to hope again that God won't be a bastard and that he can learn how to love kids hmm. without fear oh yeah. <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> we were so close i do think that that ellen davis is leading us in the right direction right this is not just some party trick where god is making all the bad go away but we can see job in this new light as a, a person who is growing and trusting and being vulnerable. And honestly, man, like in situations where the worst of the worst is unloaded on human beings, mm-hmm. trusting again is really beautiful. 
right? And being vulnerable again is really beautiful because I think that the 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 mindset would be I'm going to close up shop. Mm-hmm. Screw it all. And to see somebody sort of move beyond that, that's... In some ways, it makes me think of what's happening in the world today. Tell me more. They're sort of in the... Ukrainian people yeah. sort of being in the middle of the Job story. Yeah. Where they're losing And, and so this, this is where I would say there is no prescriptive answer for those people right. with regard to like, oh, do what Job did. Right. Yeah. But can this be a thing that might be meaningful for people in the midst of that? Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Are there other examples in the Bible of this? Yeah, I think so. Different ways of approaching this? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, there you go. And I, I think this is going to be sort of uh, par for the course as to the lengths of which we can make this story palatable because it's tough. Mm-hmm. I still don't think I like it. <laughs> but as a wisdom story, it it's it gets lodged in your brain and you have to wrestle with, what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. How do I hear this? What am I learning from this? How do I apply wisdom to understand the wisdom that's contained therein? I think those are good places to start. I think it's better as a wisdom story slash uh, parable than it is as an historical. Oh, yeah. If God is really dealing, you know, like bets in the sky yeah, with, I'm with like, the Satan. Forget that. No, thank you. That's not the God I believe in. No, no, no. And that's not us saying that willfully like, oh, you know, screw that story. It's more of a. Let's look at the whole corpus of yeah. what we have here, and that's not the image that we see. Yeah. But as Tessa was saying earlier, yeah, I think when you when you start to apply like parable, fable, myth to the story, it kind of opens up the doors for you to start seeing things a bit broader than uh, this was literal historical happening, and what that would then mean. I mm-hmm. don't think that's I don't think that's what's what's going on here. Yeah. Sweet meat. Ew. <laughs> Sorry. But sure. Okay. Peace, love, <laughs> and equality. Hey. Bye. Bye.